Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. I have long enjoyed the great outdoors. I was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, where you're no more than about a two-hour drive to almost anywhere that you want to go. Uh, Whether it's snowy mountains or beautiful coastline and beaches, maybe dense forest land, high desert, or even lush farmland, it's all here. And as a child, my dad would spread a map out over the kitchen table. And for millennials, uh, a map is a paper version of Google Maps and Google Earth. (laughs) Um, We would all gather around the table and and look for a small lake that was big enough that would it wouldn't winter kill, which means that the fish wouldn't all die off because it would freeze too deep. Uh, but small enough and remote enough that there would be the possibility that you know we might not actually encounter another human the entire weekend. <laughs> Um, there were, there were trips that we got stuck in a tent for the whole trip because it just rained the whole time, but, um, but it was fun and it was fun to get out and catch some fish and to hike into a lake or a stream that we had never seen before. And, uh, you know, we weren't rich growing up. We were part of the middle class that was on a budget and had to be frugal, (laughs) And, and hiking and being in the great outdoors was a great way to do that because uh, it was a frugal way to have entertainment and, and really to get out into God's creation and just absolutely appreciate it. Uh, later, when I became an adult, I learned how to fly fish. I, I asked an expert at fly fishing if I could just tag along and learn and just by watching him a little bit. His name was Uriel Santana, and he took me under his wing. And for years, he had him, him and I, we had adventures after adventures together. Uh, we still do it from time to time, just not as much now. But fly fishing and whitewater rafting were our favorites. And he, he became uh, a great friend of mine. And, and we could have probably written a book with all the stories that we have had, and it might have even been a bestseller because we just we have had so many different things happen to us, and and uh, and and just had so many memories created by our trips. Uh, Uriel and I would float uh, a river together and and spend a week uh, at a time, just uh, on the water doing nothing but just eat, sleep, fish, and repeat. <laughs> it was it was a great way to get away and not have any kind of phones, not have any kind of email, nothing, you know, just like I said, eat, sleep, fish, and repeat. Um, one day I was talking with an old timer uh, about how I love to waterfall hunt. And he told me of an incredible waterfall near where I lived. And I, re- and I went in to, to research it and I couldn't find almost anything on it until one day I came across it on an old map and I I spent four years hunting for that waterfall. And when I finally found it, it was well worth the effort. It was spectacular. Hard to find, (laughs) hard to get into, 
but absolutely spectacular. Uh, one of the fastest growing sports currently uh, in in the U.S. is uh, a sport called disc golf, and uh, it's it's kind of like ball golf, but you use discs, kind of like frisbees, and you try putting them into a basket uh, with the least amount of strokes. <laughs> um, local park departments have been putting in many of these courses because it uh, it puts people into areas of parks that normally are reserved for, you know, like drug sales and homeless camps and, and hormonal teenagers, right? Um, disc golf gets me out into some beautiful area and just scratches that competitive itch that I have uh, with an occasional tournament now and again. Uh, it's a lot of fun and it's very inexpensive. And just recently, my wife, Christy, and I decided to buy an old travel trailer. Uh, neither of us really have much experience with RVs, but, you know, we're getting older. And the thought, the thought of a little more comfort was just too much to pass up. And we just uh, took it out for its inaugural voyage. And the two uh, of us and our two girls uh, who just loved skipping the rocks in the creek that we were next to, uh, petting the rabbits, even some of them were very tame, and and playing board games inside, outside, out of the rain was uh, just a lot of fun uh, over a weekend. Uh, you know, there there's a pretty large learning curve when it comes to RVing, as probably some of you know, <laughs> but, you know, we're really looking forward to all the adventures and memories that we're going to make with this uh, travel trailer. Uh, I love the outdoors and I enjoy it in many different ways and in many different forms. Uh, and it is funny when I see how Hollywood portrays the outdoors. They never get it right when it comes to the outdoors. And you can tell the writers of these movies and TV shows, they, they've never really enjoyed being outside of their own probably backyards. <laughs> In, in the same way, there are a lot of pretty stupid people that know very little about what they're talking about, particularly when it comes to the outdoors. Um, and they may have a PhD after their name, but they just don't have a clue about the things that they try to teach and talk about. Uh, and, and one such person is, I wanted to highlight here, her, I came across this article. And it was called The Great Outdoors Was Made for White People. <laughs> it was just written uh, here just a few days ago. Uh, and um, uh, Mar uh, Maria, uh, Maria Tishali is her name. And she does have a PhD uh, behind her name. And she is a, a sociologist uh, and, a, and a postdoctoral research fellow at the uh, Shorenstein Center in Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, she's also a lecturer in studies on women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard University. <laughs> and her area of specialty includes intersectionality and inequality. So if that tells you something a little bit about the writer of this article, uh, you're, you're going to see here in a minute what I'm talking about. Uh, she starts off by saying, after social distancing protocols force countless Americans into indoor isolation for the winter. And, and I'll say here just for stopping here for a second. 
the social distancing protocols and and all the COVID-19 restrictions were much longer than one winter. We have been over a year into this. Uh, and, and so to say that, you know, we were forced indoors, which of course was exactly the opposite thing that we should have been doing. We should have been uh, getting outdoors where you couldn't catch COVID. Uh, but anyway, she said that, you know, Americans were forced into, you know, indoor isolation for the winter. Many of us are eager to run into the warm embrace of mother nature and the outdoors with gusto. While a pandemic has exposed structural in, inequities in everything from healthcare to education to housing, less remarked upon has been the institution of the great outdoors. And like most American institutions, outdoor space, and crucially access to it, has been socially and physically constructed by white supremacy and settler colonialism. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's stop there just for a second. Okay. <laughs> Let me read this to you again. She says, and like most American institutions, outdoor space and access to it has been socially and physically, socially and physically constructed by white supremacy and settler colonialism. Now, that's a big statement, and of course, it's completely wrong, but let's continue to see what she's talking about. She says, in his book, 1869 book, The Switzerland of America, a summer vacation in the parks of, of mountains of Colorado, journalist Samuel Bowles III wrote that within the beautiful U.S. outdoors, quote, lie the pleasure ground and the health home of the nation, unquote. When European colonists first set eyes on North America, they considered it undeveloped, ripe for the uh, instrumentalization, never mind that it was hardly uninhabited. Fast forward several centuries, past untold destruction of natural resources to create often wasteful urban and suburban sprawl, the patches of nature that seemingly remained untouched began to take on a new meaning. Okay, let's stop. Yes, there were some native people here when obviously the settlers and the pilgrims and things came over. Okay, that's true. But <laughs> untold destruction for wasteful urban sprawl I mean, what, what destruction, what wasteful destruction, untold destruction for wasteful urban sprawl? What, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to not build homes? Are we supposed to not build roads? Because I'm pretty sure the native peoples of the area, when the settlers got here, were building homes as well. but. I digress. Let's continue. Quote, the great outdoors was constructed as a place to go to escape the stress of modern life, to be more in touch with nature. We like to think of the great outdoors that this country has cultivated, national and public parks, campgrounds, and nature preserves as representative of our 
democratic ideals. They are for everyone. But this belies their origin. Okay, so she's going to get into some sort of origin of our national parks and campgrounds and nature reserve type areas. Throughout military and legislative intervention, such as the Mariposa Battalion's violent raid of the village of Awanachi in 1851, which expelled the remaining indigenous people from Yosemite. These places were cultivated primarily for white people. Early conservationists like Bowles or the venerated John Murr or Madison Grant were not shy in advocating racial exclusivity. Okay. When they spoke of the importance of nature for our nation, they meant the white nation. All right, let's let's stop. I I can't I can't go any farther without saying that first of all, the outdoors were constructed. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure, and I, I might have to Google this, right? Pretty sure the earth was made by God. Okay. I'm pretty sure that we did not construct the great outdoors. So, so all of these con- conservationists, she's saying, of the past were racist bigots. I mean, come on. You cannot say that our park system, whether it be our national park system or anything else, was constructed for white people. And, and, I, and I was pretty sure that conservationists were supposed to be our heroes, right? I mean, that, they are the heroes of the left, conservationists. And yet we're going to throw them under the bus here to try to make a point that our park systems were created for whites. This is just stupidity, but let's continue because it's kind of entertaining too. The picturesque image of the American road trip to a national park, it was mainly for white people until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Ensure of non-white subjects is an um, inextricable form uh, that, that the project of the American wilderness. I don't know what she's talking about here. The land that the U.S. federal government annexed into national parks became available, she says, only through the forcible removable of indigenous uh, people. The notion that national parks were created for the enjoyment of the people implies that these spaces were formally void of people. According to legal scholar Isaac Cantor, all U.S. national parks exist on lands that were inhabited by indigenous people. All right, newsflash, right? Newsflash here. There were native peoples here before the settlers came from other countries. Okay, just just so she know. I mean, she's she is letting you know that there were people here even before the pilgrims came. So, you know, for what it's worth. African-Americans have a complex history with the great outdoors. Our African ancestors had a deep and symbolic relationship to nature, and their descendants found ways to 
recreate these connections with America. And while it was a refuge of socializing outside of the eyes of watchful slave masters, and for the free African-American farmers, a source of substance and financial independence, it was also associated with danger and violence. It was a site of potential capture and uh, execution, or simply death by exposure to the elements for runaway slaves. After emancipation, it became the setting for countless attempts at completed lynchings, primarily of African-Americans, but also Latinx, I'm sure they didn't call them Latinx back then, Asian American and indigenous people. So all of these people are getting lynched in the great outdoors, is what she's saying. <laughs> the, the complicated relation, do, do you see why I had to bring this article to you? It's just amazing. The complicated relationships that people of color in the United States have developed with the outdoors because of white violence, coupled with the fact that many local parks and all national parks either did not admit people of color or, in some cases, segregated them up until 1964, rendered it an effectively white domain. White America had time to cultivate popular images of camping, hiking, and kayaking, indeed to develop an entire outdoor leisure culture whose participants they assumed looked like them. All right, right here, right here, I'm calling this baloney, right here, okay? People who go into the great outdoors are, are, are not shocked when we see somebody who's not white. Okay. When, when, when we go out and and decide to go hiking or camping, I go waterfall hunting or whatever. I am not floored when I see somebody who's not white. And I assume that everybody I'm going to see out there is white. That is absolute baloney. And she has not a clue what she's talking about. Even now, she says, the cost of access to activities like camping is prohibitive for a large portion of Americans. Camping Equipment can easily run $550 and up. Considering that black, brown, and indigenous people are disproportionately low income, it's easy to understand why they are underrepresented in recreational activities like this. Okay, I got, okay I'll keep going. I'll keep going. For the people of color who do not have the means and access to activities such as camping, It is not uncommon to hear of reports of racist comments, stares, threats, or violence. Amy Cooper, anyone? All right. Okay. I got to stop here. (laughs) All right. Got to stop. So she's pulling out this whole, this whole thing of, of racism for everything. And, and this people of, uh, that aren't white are disproportionately low income thing that now because of that, that we have to make changes. All right. That's just, again, a bunch of baloney. Uh, Anybody can get out into the great outdoors doing whatever. I mean, you, you can, you can get some discs and you can go throw them out in, in a disc golf course and enjoy the, the outdoors for very minimal uh, amount of money. 
um, like like twenty dollars. Okay, Amy Cooper, she says, is is her example here of of if you are uh, not white, then you're you're going to come across stares and threats and violence and and comments. And um, Amy Cooper, if you if you don't remember, is the woman who called the police while walking through Central Park. Uh, because a, a black man said he was going to kill her dog. Okay. Now, did she handle that correctly and all that? No, I'm not, I'm not defending her. But what I'm saying is that is a terrible example of what she's talking, uh, 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 trying to support what she's talking about here. Uh, and, it, and it really just boils down to the soft bigotry of low expectations, right? Bush's quote, the soft big bigotry of low expectations where you're saying, you know what? Black people cannot do their own thing right? That they are, they are totally stupid. They are totally poor. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And it takes us, um, us white people to really help them out or else they're, they're screwed. That this, the, this soft bigotry of low expectations, the uh, having so low expectations for a group of people that, that it basically turns into bigotry. That is what's happening here. And this is what she's saying. This is what, this is her. This is a great example of that. And I have to say, I mean, even let's just say that that it was true that every single black person is, um, you know, has doesn't have two nickels to rub together. Well, what about homeless camps? I can go down the road here in the Pacific Northwest, and I can see all kinds of homeless camps with all kinds of tents, and 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 how how did they get those? How how are they able to? camp and, and enjoy the great outdoors uh, if they don't have any money. I mean, come on, this is just absolutely pathetically bad. She continues and says, maybe they should ignore the local and national parks and just enjoy their neighborhood greenery instead. Well, there is a problem there too. Areas that were re um, redlined, typically neighborhoods of people of color are less likely to have green space. The dearth of the green space in these areas uh, has also been influenced by earlier ideas around uh, policy and such, uh, which suggests that parks made it easier for people to commit crimes. Currently, research now suggests the opposite, as long as the space is well-designed and maintained. This issue is particularly important considering the, uh, the research, empirical research, asserting that access to green space has mental, physical, and psychological health benefits. How can we make outdoor space more accessible and inclusive to all? Well, here are a few good places to start, and here's her suggestions, okay? More representation and inclusion of people of color in media about the outdoors and in uh, nature-oriented organizations and businesses. She says this means more park rangers and more management roles in conservation and nature nonprofits and businesses include the perspective of people of color when considering both the history and the future of conservation. So <laughs> if we just had more, you know, non-white forest rangers, we would be doing great. Or, you know, um, if I tuned into a, a nature channel and it was being narrated by a non-white person, boy, this would really make a difference. Okay. Uh, she says, make the great outdoors more physically accessible. A campground I went to last year gave detailed instructions on how to get there via public transit and picked up and dropped off customers and their equipment to their campsite by shuttle. 
It also rented out camping gear. The practices the, the practices accommodate people without cars who live far from nature or who are unable to afford the purchase or storage of equipment. Accessibility doesn't stop there. Gender-neutral bathrooms and accommodations for those with physically physical disabilities are also part of the equation. Okay, I don't know of a park that doesn't accommodate physical disabilities, but I, I'll continue here. The, she says to offer affordable trainings and inclusive community organizations that create safe spaces for people of color to uh, accrue the knowledge and skills needed to do outdoor activities like camping. <laughs> Here's that soft bigotry of low expectations again. Great examples of inclusive organizations include outdoor Afro and Latino outdoors. Okay, so if, again, this is just racism. If I was to say, we need more, um, you know, more trainings uh, and uh, organizations that, um, that, that really went after uh, white people and really were centered toward whites. Um, would you say that that's racist? Yeah, you would say that that's racist, but that's what she's saying we should do. Develop more access for indigenous communities to utilize these spaces for sub, uh, substance farming. This will help indigenous people not only to feel welcomed into these spaces, but also to maintain aspects of their traditional foodways, which are significantly healthier than the processed foods that they are e that are easy to find on reservations. I, again, this is we could spend a, probably a whole other podcast talking about this kind of stuff. It's just absolute baloney. All right, and lastly, she says. Support local and national government incentives to fund the engagement of people of color in the outdoors, as well as the creation of more green spaces in low-income communities. This is partly uh, this is partially crucial, given that we know that access to green spaces is public health is a public health issue. I mean, basically, what she's saying is uh, we need more money to uh, give to non-whites. It's just more of the same mantra you hear all the time. And as many of us, myself included, she ends, are itching to be outside in the greenness of summer. It is important to recognize that these are privileges that have not been afforded to everyone. How have they not been afforded to everyone? At this moment of nationwide racial justice reckoning, it's not, uh, let's not forget to integrate the great outdoors like many of our of the most uh, insidiously imbalanced institutions it may appear neutral or natural but it's anything but it's a man-made construction constructed to exclude so we must work to make it truly uh, democratic so everyone can enjoy the physical mental and psychological benefits of our beautiful land. Let's truly make it our land, she concludes. I mean, so you can see why I had to do the podcast on this today. I actually was sent this uh, article and I thought it was like a Babylon Bee thing. And then when I looked it up, and I, oops, nope, it wasn't. <laughs> it, it was actually a real article. 
And, um, and I just, I just had to, to cover it because it was just so far out there, but it gives you again, another glimpse into the way that a leftist thinks and everything is racist. Everything about our country and its history, uh, is rooted in race in racism. And, and you can't back any of this up. None of this is true, but they sure love to spew it. And, and, you know, you, you may agree, you may disagree. I would definitely love to hear from you on this. And you can, of course, do so at UncommonSensePodcast.com. That's UncommonSensePodcast.com. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.